Okay, let's go to Luke 10. Now, have you ever watched one of these shows where it's, uh, it's contestants trying to stump some kind of a master um, a gamesman? You know, I think of uh, a little bit along that line is the, uh, is the uh, little show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Well, it's not exactly quite like that. I think of, uh, I think of Alex Trebek, but he's got all those answers on a card, so it's, it's not really a fair thing. But, but uh, maybe you've played a game like this. Uh, of course, those kind of game shows rely on topics that have wide popular appeal, but are ultimately of little consequence. Now, the important, in, in things like that, the important <coughs> questions of life are not the subject matter of most game shows. Maybe you, like me, got hooked back in the 80s on Trivial Pursuit. But I remember that by, by nature and by title, it is just a Trivial Pursuit. Okay? So... Uh, when I think about what we're going to deal with today, the Gospels often show us some people in Jesus' day who tried to play stump the expert with him. But time after time after endless time, um, to, to match wits with the master of the universe just wasn't going to come out very well for the person trying to match wits, was it? I would submit to you, and you've heard me say this before if you've been around me very much, I would submit to you that Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, represents in human form the smartest man who ever lived. Okay? He always got the question, he always got the answer right. So to try to match wits with him was kind of an interesting um, occurrence, but we see it happen time after time after time, like we will today as we're studying the story of... Um, of uh, the Good Samaritan, really, it's a part of one of these stump the expert um, uh, type exchanges. Now, by the way, since I've, I've neglected to do this last week, next week, if you want to prep, look ahead to uh, Matthew 25. We're in um, kind of this, this part of the Gospels where we're talking about um, the overall theme is are the verbs of worship. And we're talking in these couple of weeks about giving and serving. And uh, so we'll talk this week a little bit about giving and serving to a certain degree, and then, then again next week about the issue of serving. Um, let's talk about the characters in this story that you and I know pretty well. Would you admit that probably the story of the Good Samaritan is a pretty well-known story, even outside um, of the church? Pretty well-known story. Um, in fact, you're liable to hear on a news broadcast or even a sports show somebody doing a good turn for somebody else, and they'll call them a good Samaritan. Uh, it's, it's a common phrase used, right? But we ought to kind of come to terms with what the original story was about. So let's look at the characters. The first character that we encounter is a person called a lawyer. All right, now I don't want to, um, I don't want to kind of misconstrue this, because this is not a lawyer in the sense of uh, lawyers in our day, uh, this guy would be a person who constantly spent his time studying to understand the law of Moses. So he, in our day, he would be a Bible scholar, a Bible teacher, okay? That kind of a lawyer. Not necessarily a person who, who litigated disputes between people, all right? Although he may be called upon to do that. That wasn't his primary role, 
not a legal expert in the sense of, in that sense. Well, let's look at a couple of the other characters in the in the story. One was a Jewish priest. Okay, now what he, one of the things, and we'll see a priest and a Levite. Let me let me differentiate between the two. Okay, a Jewish. Um, here's kind of how I remember it, and I've tried to teach this when I have a chance. All priests were Levites. But all Levites weren't priests, okay? Remember, the priests were from the tribe of Levi, in particular from the tribe of Aaron, okay? From the tribe of Aaron, who was himself from um, um, the Levitical tribe. So all, all priests were of the tribe of Levi, okay? They all wore jeans. <laughs> don't go with that, okay? Just don't go with that. But... All Levites were not priests. Some Levites had other duties, as did this one in this story. This particular Levite, uh, we don't know exactly what his role is. He could have been a janitor at the temple. He could have been um, a choir member. He could have been a trumpet player. In that case, he was shrewd and wonderful. But um, uh, he, he, could have been, you know, he could have been one of many things, a worship leader of some kind, or somebody who took care of the property or prepared or cleaned uh, utensils used in, in worship and that kind of thing. The priest himself would be the person who um, acted on behalf of the people, offering sacrifice, listening to prayers, those kinds of things. Now, so you got those two characters in here. And then we've got, um, we got the, the lawyer and the priest and the Levite. <clears throat> and then in contrast with these two was this person that we're going to, that, that the Lord is going to call in his story a Samaritan. He's at the center of the story. Jews and Samaritans were rivals um, for the land of Israel and for the claim to be God's people. In 722 BC, uh, Assyria attacked and, uh, and kind of captured the northern kingdom of, of, um, of Israel and carted a lot of people, some people off, but they brought a lot of other people in and kind of intermingled them in those northern provinces um, around Palestine. And so, you and I know that, that one, of the, one of the goals and one of the kind of laws was to keep the, um, the race pure, and yet these folks in the northern kingdom uh, intermarried with Assyrians and others that they brought in, that they deported from other places. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, we see this constant battle uh, kind of, uh, uh, kind of argument uh, between the Samaritans in the north and the Jews in the south arguing over where's the best place to worship, where is it, you read about that in John 4, uh, all those kinds of things. There was a constant antagonism um, uh, after the Jews re returned from their exile in 539 DC, BC. Jews had very few dealings with Samaritans and uh, Jesus' enemies tried to discredit him often by calling him a Samaritan actually. And uh, now, while I'm thinking about some of this biblical background, uh, I've got a few copies of uh, Terry emailed me. Terry Fakes emailed me over the week. Um, Terry and Laura are taking a trip to the Holy Land uh, coming up like the end of May, I think, first part of June. I can't think of anybody better to go to the Holy Land with than Terry Fakes, can you? Uh, but there's about two more weeks to sign up for this thing, and there are a few spot left, spots left. If you're interested, there are some brochures up here. You can grab them. Um, I'll just kind of leave them here, and you can come up there. Um, I asked Terry if I get a finder's fee. He, did, he wasn't committal. 
But I can't imagine anybody better to go to the Holy Land with than the guy that knows every rock over there. I mean, he really does. Now, let's get into the story. Bob, do you mind to read for us? Let's start with Luke 10. And if you'd read kind of the setup where Jesus meets this lawyer, verse 25 through 29. Okay, now, we're, gonna, we're meeting this guy. Now, now first of all, you've got to realize, his question was a really, really good question, okay? Um, this isn't the only time the Savior's asked this question. Um, turn with me to a couple of pages over to chapter 18, um, and look at 18, 18. Here's another one who comes to him and says to Jesus, a ruler, this is sometimes we call him the rich young ruler, a ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was the buzz question. And it ought to be our question. We ought to be interested in this. Can I be honest with you? We ought to wait. We ought to not wait until the doctor gives us some bad news. Or until a loved one, we lose a loved one. To ask the question of eternal life. Now, in our culture today, uh, we don't there's not a whole lot of discussion about this anymore. But I still think it is a, a, there is no more important issue. But this is a test. This is, um, this is really a lawyer who kind of has in his mind what the answer is, and he's trying to see if Jesus gets the right answer. But honestly, in this test of wits, it's like Don Knotts getting ready to battle with Muhammad Ali. I can hear Andy Griffith saying, he'll kill you, barn. Okay? You know? Uh, he asked this question. Well, he's really kind of wanting to show Jesus up. And it doesn't really turn out that way, does it? Now, as you look on to verse 26, Jesus does something that he often does. He will answer a question with a question. Do you like it when people do that to you or do you not like it? <laughs> it kind of bugs us, doesn't it? But, but it's a great teaching tool. Um, a student in class asks the teacher uh, what he thinks is a brilliant question. And the teacher, instead of answering the question, says, well, what do you think? Okay, that's kind of what's going on. It's not that the teacher doesn't know the answer. It's just that he wants the student to kind of work it out. So Jesus is trying to draw the lawyer out on this question. He's trying to see, um, uh, trying to kind of uh, give the lawyer a chance to answer his own question. He wants the lawyer to go on record here. And so he says, basically, um, what do you think? I, I love that. I love that. And interestingly, in verse 27, we find out that the lawyer is prepared. He's not stumped by this. In fact, I'm guessing, like a good lawyer in our day, you don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer for. Okay, So I'm guessing he has studied all night preparing for this. He's poured over the, over the Old Testament law, certainly the, the five, first five books of the law, and he's all prepared to answer the question that he's going to ask the master teacher, hoping to stump him. And so when Jesus turns the question back on him, he answers 
uh, actually using a combination, and I put the references there, of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. These are, are kind of well-known passages in the scriptures, but he, uh, he does an interesting thing here. Okay, don't want to get overly political, but did you read about Brian Williams this week? Okay, I was, I'm trying to get the, pic, the story in my, my mind, because I kind of like Brian Williams. I listen to him most evenings if I'm home by 5.30. And, um, and what I recognize is that it seems to me that one of the answers to this thing, and in fact, I'm reading a news story yesterday on, online, and it, it defined the word that they used in this. Evidently, they think, that those who are kind of in... Um, uh, trying to be nice to Mr. Williams, is they think that he has, in the story that he answers about this uh, helicopter trip that he took um, a few years back, that he has conflated two stories. Have you heard that? Sorry? He's conflated two stories. That means he's taken the details of one and juxtaposed it into another and kind of pulled the two of them together. Okay. All right, now it's interesting. I'm reading this story. It says this is a conflating of two stories. And then it defines the word conflated for me. I thought that was interesting. Well, in some ways, our buddy, the lawyer here, has conflated two scriptures. He has uh, decided that um, according to the law, that if you love God and love your neighbor, you're in pretty good shape in terms of eternal life. And he's really kind of right. In fact, Jesus commends him for it. Um, he takes the two central commands of the law, certainly love God. Every Jewish boy and girl, from the time they were able to speak, would be able to, um, to quote, O hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, so they're used to saying that. They know that. So he takes that central command and adds to it another central commandment, and that is uh, found in the book of Leviticus about loving your neighbor. He answers well. And so look at verse 28 again. So after he answers, the Lord says, you've answered correctly. Now do this. <laughs> I find it interesting. It's not enough to just know the answer. i got to do the answer. So he's in a bit of a dilemma here. He's kind of put himself in his own pickle. He can either, um, he can either kind of ignore that and just walk away, or he can continue to press. And so, like a really good lawyer, he decides to press. So um, um, now he's got to keep these commandments but how, he, he begins to think, how can I ever know if I've kept those well enough? So he presses the test a little further. And he says, what's the question here? Okay, now what we, you, you, you got it right. What, what you and I need to understand is the, the essence of, or the point of, or the crux of, the story of the Good Samaritan is the answer to this question, who is my neighbor? Okay? That's what the lawyer asked in uh, what? In verse, um, in verse uh, 29. But the writer, Dr. Luke, gives us a motive issue. He kind of uncovers a motive issue in verse 29. What does he say about the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? 
He wants to justify himself. He kind of does have some egg on his face. And he's wanting to justify himself. He's wanting to prove his own righteousness here. So he, um, he kind of keeps going. Now, um, it's interesting. His question, what must I do to inter- eternal life, wasn't a knee-jerk question. It was thought up, it was thought up in advance. Uh, he pondered that question well in advance. But it's interesting as this thing progresses, it's not Jesus that ends up being on trial, but our friend the lawyer. Uh, people still have questions about Jesus today, right? Uh, some of those come from the lips of sincere seekers for truth. Others originate from evil hearts that only want to try to discredit the story or to discredit the master himself. But ultimately, our questions about Jesus end up revealing a lot more about us than about him. Kind of true here, right? Um, It just seems to me that um, the issue here ends up being not whether or not Jesus knew the answers. He did. But whether or not this man's own answers he was willing to live up to. And so he's trying to qualify that uh, got to love your neighbors yourself, thinking through that, he says to the Lord, so who's my neighbor? And on the spot, Jesus composes this story. What do you think? You think Jesus had already composed this story in his mind weeks ago, months ago, days ago? We have no way of knowing, do we? I'm okay with the thought that he just starts spinning a yarn. You remember, again, he is the smartest man in the room in any room he was ever in. Okay? You ever been with somebody who just the smartest person in the room and it's like, wow. Okay? I've been around lots of people. I I live in an academic environment and I'm always the dumbest guy in the room. Believe me. I know. Believe me. I know. I, I think I'm blessed by the Lord with an emotional intelligence, but the other stuff I've had to work really, really hard for, okay? And it's impressive to be with a Saeed Sarani. Okay? Tracy, you know what I'm talking about. Who impresses me with his knowledge. It's impressive to be with a Dr. Cliff Sanders. It's impressive to be with a Dr. John Fosick, with people who've just, you know, forgotten more than I'll ever know. So he's in this dilemma now, and Jesus then answers his question. I love the answer to his question. He does answer, who's my neighbor? Well, let me put it this way. There was, and he begins to tell the story. Okay, let's read the story. Somebody read 30 down through 37. Steve Blair, would you read it? What a great answer. Now, I want us to deal with a little bit of geography here. I'm not Terry Fakes, but I want us to deal with a little bit of geography here. Uh, if, you, if you even want to look in the back of your Bible, if you've got maps there, you might notice that, um, that if, if this fella is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, that he's traveling north, kind of north-northeast, if I catch that right. That doesn't sound like down to me. Sounds like up, Fred. I'm not very smart, but I kind of catch that. All right. You know, 
uh, if, if I'm going to school in the morning, I'm going down to my office. If I'm coming back home, I'm coming up back to home because it's north to south, right? Now, but this is not necessarily what's being talked about here. In fact, in fact, um, it seems that one of the things we've got to kind of catch here is that the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and, and it's a road of about uh, 15 miles or so, so it's a pretty good, pretty good stretch. Actually, uh, the road uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem goes up quite a distance. In fact, 3,000 feet or so in that amount. So it's a couple of, it's a, a couple hundred feet per mile that it goes up. It's, it's uh, kind of a filled with switchbacks and, and uh, curvy and, and kind of dangerous. So uh, it's going to be important to our discussion here, I think, today um, to understand that if I'm going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, what that's talking about is literally I'm walking down a, a road that is slanted downward. Okay, it's downhill. Okay, now that's going to come into, into play here in a minute. So the man in the story is going down from Jer- going down north. Okay, going down north. Got it? Going down northeast uh, from Jerusalem uh, to Jericho from Jerusalem. That's an important factor here. Okay, now evidently on the road that uh, as Jesus is telling the story, the robbers in the story take advantage of kind of how snaky this road road is and the many hiding places and they ambush this traveler they take everything of value that he's got including the clothes on his back they've left him completely destitute and to assure that he doesn't pursue them they inflict serious injury and they leave him kind of um, teetering on the balance between life and death okay now that's what uh, Jesus is, is spinning here with this story now you and I then meet the priest and the Levite. How many of you, like me, since I was a boy, heard the part of the story that kind of made us all feel a little better about the priest and the Levite, the part where, uh, you know, any contact with, certainly with a foreigner, um, or although this guy was not a foreigner, but a contact with, with, um, with blood and those kind of things would make them unfit for their day's duty. And so they pass by on the other side. Heard that one? I've heard that one all my life. I've probably taught that one at some point in my life. But that was before I recognized that they were going down and not up. Let's think about this for just a minute. The priest, um, a couple of things we need to think about. 15 miles was not a Sabbath day journey. This was not the Sabbath day. More than a Sabbath day journey, the priest would not have been, as a good Jewish young man, he would not have been traveling 15 miles on a Sabbath day. So he's not going to work. And in fact, if you catch it, he's going down the road, which means he's going to Jericho from Jerusalem. Guys, it's his day off. If I'm reading this right, that's what goes in your blank right there. It's his day off. This was a day off for the priest. Therefore, it would still have been plausible for him to help. The same thing's kind of true of the Levite. Uh, the Levite passes, um, it, going kind of on the same route here. And, and so um, but what I've got to deal with here is that if I understand the role of a priest and the, uh, the different role of the Levite, neither the preacher, okay, uh, the priest in this case, 
nor the singer was willing to help. Okay, now, uh, so I could say, if I'm, if I'm kind of um, using my little bit sanctified imagination, um, uh, the, the preacher going by might have said, you know what, I'm called to preach, I'm called to offer the sacrifice, I'm called to pray for the sins of the people. This is not my calling. If the, ne- the Levite who came by might have said, you know what, I'm still warming up. I've got to sing next week. Okay? No tell me what I'll get into. This is really not my calling. Are you catching what I'm catching here? Nobody was willing to offer, at this point in the story at least, what I'm going to call here, and you can put this in your blanks, practical love. Can I say something to you? I am so humbled and honored that you are not that way. I am so honored that I've never had a one of you say, well, you know, that's really not my gift. You're called on to help and you give help. Practical help. I, I just love it. You inspire me to want to be better. Kind of, you're whatever it takes kind of people. Did you know that? And I love you for it. I'm inspired by the way you have consistently constantly over and over and over again provided help for a need of a person in a, in, in a practical way. Uh, you're not the kind of people that look into the mud hole of my despair and say, hey, really sorry. You're constantly reaching down, pulling somebody up. But the preacher said, I'm really called to preach. And the singer said, I'll sing a song to you. By the way, he didn't even offer that. No practical love was offered. Now the man in the story, we've got to understand, is probably Jewish. There's no reason to think he's not Jewish. Okay? Unlike... The central figure in the story, the Samaritan, who was clearly, because he was identified by the Lord here, a Samaritan. What I've got to catch here is that the Samaritan in Jesus' story is the most unlikely candidate for being this guy's neighbor. I want you to look with me at, uh, go to John, next book to the right. Somebody read verse 9 and then jump down to verse 20. John 9, I'm sorry, John 4, verse 9 and verse 20. Okay, jump down to verse 20, John. Okay, there's this... He wasn't in Jerusalem to worship. Uh, maybe he had been in Jericho, headed back north, I, but he's going the wrong way for that. He's the most unlikely neighbor, and yet he serves as the neighbor here. 
He had what I'm going to call demonstrable love. Which the priest and the Levite do not. In fact, if you were looking and didn't know of, of any of the heritage or the nationality of the three men in the story, and you were to say, which one of these believes in God, you would choose the Samaritan, not the other two, wouldn't you? Let's be honest. And he was not anywhere close to being a physical, geographical neighbor. He lived far north. Who knows in Jesus' story what he was doing south. So this man offers two precious commodities. He offers his time. Is yours precious like mine is? He offered some time, and he offered of his resources. Um, he offered kind of some home remedies here. You can read about those in James 5.14. Oil, uh, he put kind of what he could put on. Uh, this, he probably tore his own clothes to make bandages. But there's more. In verse 35, he also offers cash. So he gives time, he gives of the resources he has available to him in his pack on his uh, donkey or whatever it is, right? He offers that stuff to him and then he offers cash. He says to the innkeeper, I'm going to pay for this guy's room and I'm going to give you enough for another couple of days and I'll come back by here. If there's a balance, I'll pay that too. It's amazing, right? Uh, a denarius here was a day's pay. So he's already spent, besides what's in his possession, he's already spent two days' pay on this fellow. And more if needed. Genuine, extravagant love. My question is, who loves like this? The one who's telling the story. Genuine, compassion, mercy, grace, undeserved, unmerited. Hey, you're not my neighbor, but I'm going to love you anyway. Extravagant here in some ways. And in order to do it, verse 36, the Samaritan had to cross what you and I would call social boundaries to offer the love of God. It really didn't seem to be an issue. The issue was there was a person in need and so he decided to meet it. Honestly, the man in the story who was hurt, his neighbors were really the preacher and the singer, not the Samaritan. And there was no response from them in Jesus' story. And so the... Jesus fires a question back at the lawyer and says, who was his neighbor? And the lawyer offers what I would call an indirect answer. He cannot bring himself to say the word, the Samaritan. Can't do it. He can't do it. He can't, maybe you've been in that position too. He just can't say, oh, the Samaritan was. Now, we've got to deal a little bit with this in the couple of minutes we've got left. The real 
story in the, the real question story wasn't who is my neighbor. That's not really a great question, although Jesus answered it. The greater question in the story would be, for this would be, what must I do to love, uh, if, if, if the, the, the man in the story, if the lawyer in the story had recognized who he's talking to, the greater question would be, Lord, what must I do to love you and to love who else? Who else do I need to love? The, the better question would be, what must I do to love God and to love you? In fact, that's a question you and I probably ought to ask about every day. What can I do to love God better and to love his people better? To love people in general better? And it's interesting here. If I'm putting myself in the story, um, you know, I've, um, um, my daughter was born in Good Samaritan Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Isn't that interesting? A Methodist Hospital. Great, great um, inner city hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, um, maybe if you're an RVer, you belong to the Good Sam Club. You know, and so you've kind of got this all figured out. And you think, you and I, in the story, are the Good Samaritan. Um, uh, interestingly, um, maybe, maybe that's kind of where you are. But what I've got to recognize here is the law expert sees no need to be an object of God's grace. He just wants to make himself righteous, to find a way to understand God's commands so much that he can keep them well enough to deserve God's blessing. And that's a program that's always been doomed for failure. What I recognize about me, if I really think of myself appropriately, I'm the victim in the story. The guy by the side of the road, bruised and broken and even naked. Without the grace of another one, unmerited, undeserved, not my neighbor, I am totally doomed. But who came along? But the one whom is telling the story. His helpless near-death condition is my condition when God found me. Isn't it? And he calls me then to be more than a neighbor. Well, one of the things I've got to discover here and got to decide is how can I better love those around me? Because what I notice in this passage and in the passage that we'll study next week is that when I serve God, he takes it incredibly personally. We'll hear him next week say, I was sick and in prison and you visited me. He takes it really personally when you serve him. I'm going to tell you, it may be that the best way to worship God is by serving someone else. And it may be an unlikely candidate when the Lord puts them in your path. I pray that God will show you clearly who that is. And I pray that you will pass the test. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. I love you.